I confess that the gospel passage from Matthew strikes me as a risky option to choose for a sermon. Who among us doesn't bristle when someone we know starts a conversation with the phrase, I'm telling you this for your own good? Because more times than not, what follows feels like anything but for our own good. When someone confronts us with our own possible wrongdoings or our own poor choices, it's easy to become embarrassed, to get defensive, and to doubt the motives of that well-doer who has come to speak to us in love. Sometimes we have good reason to question their motives. Sometimes we don't. But any kind of confrontation within a community, especially a church, seems to be a very risky business. In this passage from Matthew, we hear from Jesus' mouth a plan for conflict resolution that actually seems practical and not unlike many of the protocols we might find in our places of work. If another member of the community sins against you, then go and point out their fault when the two of you are alone. That sounds healthy and reasonable. If that doesn't work, if acknowledgement of the wrongdoing and reconciliation doesn't take place, then take two or three others with you as witnesses and talk to the person again. Now, it's not entirely clear whether these other two or three persons are coming as witnesses to what's said during this particular conversation or as witnesses to the initial wrongdoing. But either way, if the person who has sinned does not admit their wrongdoing after this intervention, then we're told in Matthew to tell it to the whole church. If the person refuses to listen to the church, then they are to be to the community as a Gentile and a tax collector. I suspect that much harm has been done in the history of the church by taking this passage at face value as a personnel manual without looking deeper at what this might actually be saying about relationships in the life of the church and in our own lives. First, the beauty of this passage for me lies in its implicit recognition that what you or I do really does matter to the whole body, the whole church community. When one of us is hurting or struggling or not being who we're called to be, it has an effect on all of us. We function as a community by functioning together. No matter how countercultural it might sound, we are responsible for and to one another. But what kind of community is it if a person can seemingly be cast away, suddenly seen as a Gentile and a tax collector? Because in our minds, to be seen as a Gentile and a tax collector usually means being seen as an outsider, as one not fit to associate with. But then remember, Jesus did not cast off Gentiles and tax collectors. Instead, he ate with them, talked with them, called them to follow him. All much to the chagrin of the elite and legalistic ones among whom he lived. So maybe any initial impression of this passage as ultimately being a warrant to cut ties with those who sin against us, maybe any initial impression of that needs a little reworking. In fact, there's actually a lot of evidence that this passage is not calling us to separate ourselves completely from those that we feel may have sinned against us or the community. Just look at what comes before and after these verses that we read today. 
Right before today's reading, Jesus talks about how to deal with broken fellowship, with hurt, and with sin. And he does it by telling the parable of the lost sheep. You might remember how it goes. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of your Father in heaven that not one of these little ones should be lost. That comes right before our reading. And then there are the verses that follow our gospel reading for today, in which Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive him? We're told Jesus replies, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy times seven. Or as some have translated it in today's language, as many times as it takes. Placed between these two accounts, today's passage on how to handle sins within the community takes on a spirit not of confrontation or discipline, but one of reconciliation and mercy. If you've been part of a church for very long at all, it's clear that no matter how much we'd like to think otherwise, conflict, pain, and division happen in the church just like it does anywhere else. Just like it happens in the home, in the workplace, in the civic arena, and even among friends. What makes the church different is not the absence of conflict. What should make us prophetic is the way that we are called to deal with it, with honesty, diligence, and a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, all that makes me feel better until we get to the next part. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the way in which the words bind and loose are used in this reading is really in a rabbinical sense, and let me tell you what I mean by that. To bind here means to hold to the law, and to loose means to decide that the law isn't really applicable in this instance. So this is actually an interpretive legal function that is given to the church. But that can still be scary, given the track record of what can happen when groups of religious people pass judgment on one another. And it can sound especially scary for those of us who find ourselves in the Episcopal Church in part due to the inclusive, accepting, non-judgmental atmosphere that we've found here. But maybe we're bringing our own worldview and baggage to the way we look at this statement of the church's authority. Because when we look at this passage, taking reconciliation as our focus, we see that what's going on here in this passage goes much deeper than an ecclesiastical jury trial. As one person has said, the church has not been given the power to bind and to loose because it is always right because it isn't, but because its primary language is one of confession, restoration, and reconciliation. And I'm going to read that again. The church has not been given the power to bind and to loose because it's always right, but because its primary language is one of confession, restoration, and reconciliation. In other words, 
When the church confronts sinfulness and hurt and division with a spirit and language of forgiveness and reconciliation, when it practices binding and loosening in this way, what we end up with is not merely judgment. Instead, we participate in the healing that we as Christians expect will one day be a reality for all of creation. When we do this, we participate in the often hidden reality that love can overcome estrangement, that healing can happen even in the face of the most staunch divisions, and that God's forgiveness is always there for the taking. When we meet sin and hurt and division with the spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation, we practice the presence of God. This is illustrated in what I think is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, and it comes from Genesis 33, where Jacob and Esau are reconciled after spending years estranged from one another. You may remember that Jacob and Esau were twins, with Esau being the older of the two. They had fought their entire lives. They even struggled in the womb. And when they were born, even though Esau came out first, Jacob was close behind, clutching his brother's heel. And things didn't get better over time. Instead, they got worse. Jacob convinced Esau to trade his birthright for food. And then to add insult to injury, Jacob tricks his father into giving him the family blessing that rightfully belonged to Esau. No wonder Esau issues a death threat against his brother, causing Jacob to flee to his mother's family. But one day the Lord tells Jacob to return home. Understandably, Jacob is worried that Esau's anger might not have subsided very much over the years. But he still goes back home, sending gifts of livestock and slaves out in front of his caravan to appease any residual anger that Esau might harbor. Jacob's messengers return with an ominous report. Esau is coming out to meet Jacob, and he's bringing 400 men with him. I suspect Jacob was scared stiff. So he approaches Esau, bowing to the ground seven times as he does. But the Bible tells us that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And Jacob says to Esau, Truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Perhaps we come closest to seeing the face of God, to being in God's presence, when we experience grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Now, I will be the first to say that I've experienced firsthand hurt in a relationship with another church member, and I hope that doesn't shock anybody here. While I was a vestry member at another church before becoming a priest, a member of that church disagreed with how I voted on a contentious and difficult issue. And a few days after the vote, she became really upset with me, raising her voice, being very accusing in the words that she chose, and making the issue a personal one. And I was blindsided and hurt. The next Sunday I was serving the chalice for communion and I saw this person cross over to the line that was on my side of the aisle so that she would receive the communion wine from me. To be honest, I panicked at first. The hurt I had experienced gave rise to this adrenaline rush. But as she came to the rail, she looked at me and said, I'm sorry. And our reconciliation took place there at the altar rail. 
I've always been struck by how right that seemed. Because the reconciliation that we experience, the reconciliation that we're called to share with the whole world, it's not about some carefully followed protocol. That's not the real meaning behind Matthew 18. The root of our reconciliation with one another is found first and foremost in the fact that it is the same God who embraces all of us. A God who refuses to lose even one of a very large flock. A God who is willing to forgive us as many times as it takes. At the end of the day, our true unity is found in a God who loves the world so much that God gives God's very self for the life of the world. It's a truth we glimpse as we come together each Sunday and share one bread, one cup.